The Getting Smart team recently hosted a town hall focused on the great education unbundling and rebundling. The conversation covered schools and programs that are reframing learning to credential, credit, and count programs and experiences that fall outside of the traditional programming in order to better meet the increasing variety of school choice, increasing demand by parents, and increasing quality options. This event was co-facilitated by team members Nate McLennan and Tom Vanderark and featured a wide range of guests. You can access all the links mentioned, a video of the discussion, and more information at the links in the show notes. For information on next month's town hall, visit gettingsmart.com slash townhalls. All right, let's listen in. Morning, everybody, or whatever part of the day you're calling in from. So we're so excited to have you here at another Getting Smart Town Hall. My name is Nate McLennan. I'm Vice President of Strategy and Innovation here at uh, Getting Smart and just excited to talk about unbundling today. So we love to start with poems here at Getting Smart and the poem uh, that was chosen today by our Poet Laureate Mason was Let the Beauty We Love Be What We Do by Rumi. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. So as, as you reflect and read on that, uh, throw into chat or if anyone wants to raise their hands and a response. Uh, how does that connect to what you're working on? How does it connect to what you think about unbundling and rebundling? Thoughts that you might have before we jump in. Tom's reminding us to start the day with awe. I love that. Uh, the Gandhi quote from Bob, becoming the change you want in the world. Um, thanks, David. Importance of being present to see the beauty of today and learning. Really appreciate everybody's comments. I, I, I thought this morning I was thinking about this as this reminds me to connect passion, purpose, and profession. And, and how do we find those links together uh, is interesting. Let the beauty we love be what we do. So uh, good words of wisdom from Rumi this morning. Okay, so today we're talking about the great education unbundling. And if we had longer or more room in the slide, we'd really say and rebundling because unbundling has been around for a while, but it's really how do we put it back together? And we're fascinated by this subject. We think there's a lot of interesting movement in this space and we wanna learn from all of you today. So as a reminder, the, the goal of this smart, Getting Smart Town Hall is to, to create space to collaboratively design, discuss and discover what's next in learning. We're gonna help, our time together will help build collective momentum and understanding, better enabling us to empower every learner to thrive. And that's our North Star and act with purpose. So do they all have agency to live a purposeful life? So let's start with a quick prompt. Um, either raise your hand if you're feeling compelled to speak today, or what does unbundling mean to you? And we say unbundling. Modular, okay. Michael Peck, thank you for starting us off. Modular learning, plug and play, dissolving silos. Oh, I like how um, Timothy, uh, outside of um, thinking about from the adult perspective. Amy, good to see you learning across a variety of place and spaces. Shane, good to see you. Courses are way too large and monolith to evolve quickly. Yes, outstanding, great. So all sorts of th keep thinking about that as we run through a couple of ideas here and, and a couple of our guests who will, will join us. 
So we're, we have a working definition of unbundling is building an ecosystem of learning experiences to best prepare learners for a future of agency and contribution. And I wanted to make note that, that we see there's different levels of unbundling. So from a school perspective, there's certainly school choice, which has been going on for a while around private, public charter, public, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's course choice, which has been really prevalent, especially in the online learning space. And, and so that also is readily available. And I think what we're interested in is this, uh, when we think about unbundling is getting even to one level further down in granularity, this idea of what's the unbundling of learner experience itself. So we can better customize for the neurodiversity that exists, uh, we know across all learners. So this is our working definition. It might be right, it might be wrong, um, but really excited to see some of the, um, the, the feedback coming in. So, Tom, we were brainstorming a bit on history. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience over the last 30 years and what you're seeing yeah. in terms of unbundling. Well, I, I mentioned in the comments, I guess unbundling sort of goes back to the printing press, right? So six or 700 years ago, books were kind of the big unbundling from the knowledgeable few to the, um, to the many. And um, in, in more recent history, um, technology has been a big part of the unbundling. Um, I, I'm thinking back to the, the pre-web days of raising my kids on Oregon Trail on thinking machines and other learning games, as well as um, books. Um, our friend Karen Pittman is here and is going to talk about all the out-of-school organizations that have been um, unbundling learning for a long time, science centers, museums, and performing arts programs. Um, but I think with the advent of the, the web in 94 or 95, there was an explosion of learning resources both in and out of school. It, it's a time when teachers really be, uh, became super active at, um, at unbundling and rebundling their own curriculum. It's when learning games took off, adaptive learning products all got their start uh, between 10 and 15 years ago. Um, in the last 15 years, um, open textbooks and open, open education resources uh, have, have really been huge. 2012, we saw the rise of MOOCs, uh, free, open, massive uh, courses that became a global phenomenon. Um, Minecraft and Roblox uh, both have a long history, but really took off as a informal learning uh, in about 10 years ago. And then we saw the very beginning of uh, AR and VR, which um, have been right around the corner for 10 years and, and are now all the rage as uh, popular uh, media is talking about the, the metaverse, the future of immersive uh, experiences. Last thing I'll mention is that this idea of unbundling and um, learners and families um, finding and putting together their own resources really jumped uh, during the pandemic and um, well-supported uh, kids and families. Uh, we saw them put together pods that were sort of a re-bundling of resources. Startups like OutSchool, um, became a global phenomenon. And so we're, we're just seeing a, a big opening in this um, informal, unbundled uh, learner 
identified a set of resources and that's what we're gonna talk about today. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we're super excited, as Tom said, to have Karen Pittman join us. Uh, she's with KP Catalyst, uh, but spent most of her career at Forum for a Youth Investment, doing amazing work for youth and really thinking about out-of-school learning experiences. So she wants to just to share a few things about the perspective of what does this unbundled universe look like? So Karen, love to he hear your thoughts on this and just uh, prompt me when to, to change slides. Sure, um, and I'll give a little orientation to why you're looking at that slide. Um, so first, thanks Tom and, and crew for inviting me in. Uh, glad to join this conversation. Um, as Nate mentioned, I have spent uh, most of my career, which is about the past 50 years, um, thinking about uh, one of the comments of sort of where and when learning happens, um, when it's not in school. It certainly does happen in school, um, but, but really trying to understand these more organic places where learning happens, um, even places where we've got, you know, we've got um, adults and resources and, and structures um, to support learning. So not just kids showing up naturally places, but, but places outside of school. And then increasingly, and I wanna talk about this a little bit, really understanding how those ideas actually also show up in school, uh, but we don't give them as much attention. Um, so the slide that you have here, just to sort of orient, orient us, um, and I just gave, gave us two, is, comes from a recent survey that was done sort of in the middle of the pandemic, done by a group called Learning Heroes, which is really supporting the idea that parents are your first and main uh, folks who are supporting their kids' education. Um, and it's coming from uh, sort of the past five years of a push, in this case, to try to bundle social, emotional, and academic development. So the more we were having conversations about not just learning happens everywhere, but learning is social and emotional, and so from a school perspective, how do we really get time and space um, and energy to really support the whole child? So all of that language that you're very familiar with. One of the things that Learning Heroes did was to talk to parents and teachers and what we would call youth workers or out-of-school time professionals, um, looking at a broad, there's nothing special about this list of specific words, but looking at a broad set of skills and competencies that most parents say they want their kids to have. And that's from earlier surveys that they've done with parents. And they basically sort of superimposed that list and, and asked, where do you see those skills and competencies most being reinforced? Um, and this is what parents answered. And this was a survey of, uh, you know, and just for, 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 for knowledge, even in the middle of the pandemic um, of those parents surveyed, and they were quite representative nationally, uh, more than two thirds said their kids were still in some kind of out of school time program, um, which could have been in the school building, but it was outside the school day. Uh, and these were parents of K to eighth graders. Um, so you'll, without looking at reading you the words, you'll see that, that parents made some pretty easy and logical distinctions between what they think they expect to be happening in school, what they feel responsible for at home, and what they hope their young people do when they put them and find them in these more community-based out-of-school time experiences, the kinds of skills and competencies that they want to have. That leads to a kind of natural understanding of the unbundling of learning environments, which are not all the same. So it seems like parents are pretty smart about saying the way I understand that thing is structured, I expect some skills and competencies to be more naturally reinforced and practiced in those spaces. Um, so there's value in thinking about this is that's what school does, that's what home does, that's what out of school does. Um, and then some of those things obviously overlap um, as you can see in there. Um, but if you click on the next one, 
Um, what we know, and go ahead and go one more time. What I wanna point out is that increasingly, as we think we're talking about unbundling, and we're talking about how the concept of unbundling fits in with where and when we support learning. Um, and uh, I'm also an advisor to uh, Education Reimagined. Um, and for those that don't know Education Reimagined, they're really talking about what a learner-centered community ecosystem looks like. And in that, they make a differentiation between what they call home bases, what they call learning hubs, and what they then call sort of field placements. So where you go to sort of be known, where you go to do some basic content-based learning, and then where you go to really take that learning and practice it and put it into something that lets you see whether it makes a difference. In the out-of-school space, for lack of sort of language, and I like to alliterate, we, we can talk about the difference between formal and informal, but informal really breaks up into two things. So all I've done with this slide is to just superimpose the words formal, flexible, and free choice on top of that original slide. I didn't change what we think happens in those spaces, but I did that very intentionally to suggest, and this is one of the things that we're doing, when we have a conversation about unbundling and we just think of school, we tend to naturally only think of the formal learning spaces like classrooms. And we also have flexible spaces. Kids are on teams, kids go to art class, they go to the art space and they have free choice spaces. They go to the library, they're in the cafeteria, they do things on their own. If learning really happens in all of those places, one of the things that we wanna do if we're starting to think about unbundling is be super sensitive to the settings and the variety of settings that are inside of these big things that we call schools, because they're also inside of these other buildings that we would call faith organizations or youth organizations or rec centers. Any of these kinds of learning can happen. They tend to lead with different ones. And the last thing I'll say, and this comes out of a conversation I just had last week with folks that are a part of the new education workforce group was coming out of, the, out of Arizona State University out of the teacher's college. And they're really thinking about what the new classroom looks like. Um, and actually how we sort of think very differently about having teams of educators with distributed experience. And again, we can think of distributed experiences only, we wanna make sure they have distributed content experience. But if I came back and put on this chart one more time, I have folks who were really gifted in formal content instruction. I have folks who were really gifted in getting young people together into these interest-driven groups that, that when I was growing up and doing social work, you call them group workers. And then we have people who really can help young people find themselves in one-on-one, -on -one, whether we wanna call those success coaches or mentors or whatever. So a part of this thinking about roles as we're thinking about unbundling is to connect unbundling the content and unbundling the places with also unbundling the roles that we're asking young people and adults to play. So I will stop there and see if any of that makes any sense. Um. Karen, super interesting, and it makes me think a little bit about if I go back to the slide of, of this is a this is sort of how I like the idea that this is how parents are viewing the system that we are living in, and it makes me think about there are we'll we'll hear from a few others later in the town hall that are actually merging and thinking about how free choice, flexible, and formal integrate together within a larger ecosystem, so that. Right. The, the perception is formal happens in school, flexible happens right. out of school, free choice, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. But I think what we're seeing is the in, in the innovation edges is that those things become blended. 
um, and changing public perception around that is probably an important thing in order to think for things to become mainstream. And I know Ed Reimagine thinks about that a lot. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's why in, in changing those words, for us to just come in and even talk about the fact that in any one of these institutions, you've got all of these things happening. They just lead with different ones. Um, and because they lead with different ones, they're structured differently. And they, and they bring in different kinds of adults and do different kinds of things. But that's the idea to really not say we have to go out in an ecosystem to find all of these things. But in every setting, we probably can see some mixture of them. So great point. Um, Karen, oh, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, just uh, I'd love to have Karen address um, Amy and Alice's question about um, demographics. Do, do you know anything about those demographics? And yes, I do know about it, and I can and I can send you the full deck and send you the. I'll drop the link to the study in the chat. Um, uh, uh, it was a, a sample that overrepresented. Um, uh, uh, parents of color and low income. So it's really a sort of a, a sample that was designed um, so that they could do demographic uh, and racial and ethnic breakouts. And they did that. Um, and I'll send you the, the full, I'll send you the link to the full story. Great. I, Amy, I'd invite you to, to say more. You're, you, you've led uh, for the last four years, one of the most interesting experiments in America of trying to be really intentional about provisioning out of school learning in a in a guided fashion but what say more about your question amy well i um yeah i was just thank you for that information karen it's really interesting and helpful and um i'm glad to hear that that was the case that um it was a demographic that oversampled families from lower income homes because when i saw some of the like the free choice for example for the home part that just gave me a, just a, a curiosity because I think a free a free choice at home can often be given the families that we've worked with can be different depending on what other demands you might have. Um, you know, if you have to be taking care of a sibling or you're yes. having to have a job or work multiple jobs. And so it was just that was probably the one that I was kind of like, huh, um, that was an interesting way to describe that. Um, but in general, I, I really like the integration of home and out of school time and, and school because you know, kids are, as you know, out of school, 80% of their waking hours every year. And so, um, and they're at, they're at home a lot of that time. And we, I don't think people take into account the home piece very often. There's actually a lot of things that kids are taught and learn at home um, that I think are really interesting to include. I think I've, I've often just seen it being more the, the formal and the out of school or the formal and the informal. And I like the, in, uh, the inclusion of the home piece. Yeah. And, and I think that's where culture and a lot of other important factors live too. Yeah, and truth and advertising, those labels are mine put on top of learning heroes. So those mm -hmm. are not the language that the, 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 the language that the, uh, the survey used was school, out of school and home. Um, that was their language. Um, I put that on just to sort of bring this inside the building and say, we could bring this because we're basically pushing to say, all of these skills and competencies need to be addressed in school. We also tend to push and say that that means they all need to be addressed in the classroom. And we leave out the other spaces and the other people in school who really could be doing these. So it's not a perfect overlay, but it was just to sort of make the case that we have to think a lot more flexibly. If we're unbundling, I guess the point is in every setting, you've got people, <laughs> you've got that setting located in a place and you've got some set of possibilities that could be happening, which could be anything from I'm learning algebra to I'm playing soccer to I'm eating lunch. And we tend to not, we tend to sort of associate and narrow the people, the places and the possibilities. 
And as soon as they went, well, what could be happening in the cafeteria? We could be having meetings of different kids of different ages with different adults, having conversations about what's going on in their community. We don't just have to be eating lunch. So it's really just sort of trying to mix and match. If we're going to talk about unbundling, it's going to take a little bit of effort on our part to really break down the silos of what we think happens in what kind of setting with what kind of people. Adding on to that, I think John asks a good question uh, or makes a, John Gould made a good comment on chat around um, sort of nesting schools within communities. This idea that school is not separate from community, but uh, schools are within community. And that ties into this idea of learner ecosystem. And part of the world that we live in as educators who are thinking about this is is um, breaking down that that inner or, or that divide that Amy referenced of formal or informal, so that we can we can feel that that students and, and that young people learners of all ages have access to a larger ecosystem, um, and, and that and we'll talk about that as we think about rebundling. So um, super interesting, um, and, and appreciate Karen all the thoughts there, and definitely keep chiming in as we spin along to the rebundle side. Other questions, comments, a uh, ton of good stuff coming through in the chat. Um, Jake, I appreciate your start to shifting to mostly free choice and flexible learning anytime we can, providing the formal piece as needed when we find gaps. Tom and I were on a call today that was, or yesterday it was someone was, they were there, area nine was building a platform where they had building the content knowledge using technology, but then thinking about the human endeavor and interacting with the learner ecosystem as how do you apply that knowledge in different ways and different places uh, within the community. So, um, okay, all sorts of interesting things in the chat. I'm gonna keep us going. So uh, let's talk about rebundling. So, so we have this unbundled universe. There's all these different things out there. You have some things that are happening in school. You have all the things that are surrounding that. We'll call that the learner ecosystem. We want to talk about four different things around how do we put these back together in interesting ways that, that really serve young people the best. Because often we've been doing a one size fits all. Um, we know there's been advances in personalization and all that kind of work. I think we have work to do in this area. So we're gonna talk about four things. So equity, policy platforms and credentialing. So the, the first piece I wanna uh, start with is just throw into chat, where do you see in your area of expertise or in your environment or, or community, where do you see good rebundling happening? Meaning people are taking disparate experiences, putting them together for learners, uh, possibly co-designing with learners, uh, as we know is important as well. So thoughts on that. Um, I'll give you a minute or two to respond and think about that in chat or just raise your hands. Yeah, Iowa Big, uh, if folks don't know about Iowa Big, they are doing a lot of work to, to have student-driven community impact projects uh, in, in, the, in the public sector as a, as a partnership between a couple districts in Cedar Rapids. I'll add, uh, Nate, that Jake is from uh, Ray Packer District, south east of Kansas City, one of the many that have launched new micro schools that are uh, feature a lot of community connected uh, project based learning as well as work based learning experiences. So these new academies or school within a school are examples of more flexible structures that, that many districts are using to to rebundle experiences and, and incorporate more voice and choice into both experiences and pathways. Yeah, thanks. And, and those of you who are throwing Jim and uh, Josh, as you're throwing different examples in, feel free to throw a link in as well, because then we can share those out. Um, Jim, you want to talk for a second about just the interdisciplinary program at the high school? Like, what does that look like? Why is that, why is that rebundling in your opinion? Um, 
it's just breaking down elements of course-centered. So teachers are teaching courses together, uh, probably not as innovative as happening in other places, but it's, it's a change. Yeah. And, and, and making it applied. So you're working on a, a real world scenario with say a science and an, and an English teacher. Great. I like uh, Karen adding that piece in on Tulsa as a city of learning. Uh, Chicago has done this. Um, uh, Houston, uh, what, Dallas has done this as well. So a few other folks are really thinking about communities of learning, which goes back to that comment of how schools sit within a nested ecosystem and how do we make those ties really tight. Uh, thanks, Josh, for sharing about Community Share, a great program or a great tech solution to think about how do you bring in experts and connected learning pieces. Okay, so uh, here's a thought of how do we define rebundling. So we talked about unbundling first, rebundling, co-designing a personalized pathway and communicating learning. So there's two, three pieces here. One is co-design. How do we get learners involved? How do we personalize it for those learners and help coach them through that process to reach their long-term goals? And then how do we communicate and document that? So as we, as we think about that, um, Matt's gonna, Bowman is gonna talk about my tech high a little bit. Um, he, the, one of the biggest issues we see with, with this unbundling is, and then rebundling is making sure there's access for every learner. Uh, it, it has often been the case, things have been unbundled for years where there's summer programs, after school programs, et cetera, that if you have funds to pay for it, you can go and enroll your child in that. But that's not an equitable solution. So whatever happens as we move forward has to address that issue about who designs? Is it, is it culturally relevant? Is it learner-centered? Is it co-designed? Who can access with technology, time, space? Um, who pays for it? Is it paid out of the public sector? Um, and if so, how? Because that can be controversial with some things around district and vouchers and um, uh, educational savings accounts, et cetera. How do we assess? How do we credential? And, and how do we share these? So I'd uh, love to hear, Matt, your thoughts on, um, you've created an innovative solution out of Utah and now in seven different states. Uh, talk us through in the simplest way possible what MyTechEye does. Well, thanks, Nate. It's an honor to be among such a great group of people, and, and I'm really happy to be here today um, and just loved what Karen said around those principles. And and Amy Anderson, uh, shout out to her. She she helped us get into Colorado, and, and we're doing great things there. So uh, MyTechEye, we're entering our 14th year now, if you can believe that, and we serve almost 20,000 students across now nine states. Uh, so it just keeps growing and interest is out there. Uh, what we do is we contract with innovative public school districts who want to serve homeschoolers around the state. So that's basically what my Tikai does. And our goal is to bring that education equity to low to middle income families that want to do a personalized education at home and in the community, uh, but really lack the, the financial means to do it in a way that that can be successful for their child. So we're really excited about that. We really embrace the, the idea that education happens in many forms, in many places. Uh, we say book-based, online, or in the community. Uh, and in the community is one of the biggest areas of growth for our families, that they really have, have tapped into this kind of uh, underground network of education providers out there. And as we bring the funding uh, capabilities to the, the family, they can really choose the best of the best in their community and or online. Uh, during COVID, you know, a lot of these community education programs shut down. And so 
uh, we quickly saw a big shift to outschool.com uh, for families that wanted some uh, community-based programs through outschool. Uh, and it's really just been a, an amazing experience. Uh, and it's free to, free to every family. So that's what we're really excited about is that establish that equity. Every, every child can get access to a computer paid for. We pay for their internet. We pay for their karate classes, their community education, art classes, uh, everything that is there. And, and back to your other slide around co-designing, we really bring in teachers, staff, mentors, parents, and students to design this ideal education program for them and, uh, and really just help give them wings to fly and feed them with as much high quality education programming that they can get and help them go as far as they can go. Uh, one of the things we're also excited about is that we had a lot of parents after a few years say, hey, can you do something in higher ed? Uh, they've had such a great experience in, in uh, my tech high through K-12. And so we partnered with uh, some different colleges and, and we're really excited about one that we just did a couple years ago with Snow College uh, the, and talk about unbundling. Their model is that we've helped them implement is disaggregated faculty model where the curriculum, faculty, mentor and grader are all separate. And uh, that disaggregated model is kind of what you've been talking about and allows us to really reach more students at a more affordable price. Uh, it's, it's only $1,800 a semester for unlimited college credits that can be transferred everywhere. So uh, both of those things together have, have really been a great, uh, great solution. So uh, what are the questions, Nate? I'm just yeah, honored. I, I to mean, I, I think there's so, so the, the way you can experience this, because this is how I had to experience it, is you can go onto the website that's been in chat and and go to the schedule builder and, and you can experience it as a learner and just say, oh, I want to construct my experience from a variety of options. And if it's, if it's, there's nothing there that I want that works, that doesn't, that I can construct and suggest my own. And then uh, you can use public funds to support it. And so, so it's really interesting. They partner with districts within the States. And so they're a, a provider uh, in partnership with that district, uh, the public school district. So, um, really interesting um, and, and unlocked some possibilities to really think about how do we rebundle with the with the learner driving um, the process rather than someone else so and I'll just share really quickly one other thing that we're excited about we we view both college and career paths right so we embrace the AWS certifications the the LinkedIn learnings the um, Cody boot camps and cybersecurity programs we partner with Virginia Tech for that. Uh, just some really cool things to help kids pursue a path that they are, are choosing instead of boxing them into to one particular arena. And, and for the younger kids, we launched this year a board game entrepreneurship course. And we've contracted with a board game manufacturing company that will host a pitch event every May and has agreed to pay any idea they choose of a kid's game. They'll pay that student 5% royalty for life. And so we really are hoping that we can get some kids who to pitch well in May, get their board game idea to market and earn a 5% royalty check for life. So that's one of the things we're really excited about this year. Super interesting. So so Matt and High Tech High have, have helped um, sort of unpack a little bit around how do we make this accessible for all, uh, accessible for all and 
um, how do we rebundle? So we're going to move to our next, what we think is an opportunity um, around policy. And for those of you who are policy fans out there, you recognize that there's all sorts of state rules and regs that, that uh, get in the way of um, using unbundled solutions and then rebundling them back together. Uh, there are states making progress. We wanted to highlight and um, bring on Steve uh, who's uh, Kozakowski, who's the CEO of uh, VLAC, so the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has done some interesting policy work around their Learn Everywhere program, uh, which is legislation. And I think that's helped VLACs be super successful as a public free charter school uh, in New Hampshire. So Steve, talk to us a little bit about VLACs and how policy has enabled that, um, if you think that's the, the truth. Sure, um, hello everybody. Um, Again, I'm Steve Kozakowski, and uh, just to let you a little know a little bit about our school. We've been around for 14 years. Last year, we worked with uh, 12,500 kids. We have about 330 employees. Uh, we're all charter schools in New Hampshire are free to uh, resident students. Uh, charter schools are funded directly by the state. So, for any uh, kid who works with us, there's no charge back to a school district. There's no um, no additional fees or changes to uh, state funding for those school districts. Um, about 72% of our kids come from traditional schools on a part-time basis. And we also have uh, around 900 full-time kids who will work toward earning a, a diploma with us. And we serve grades K through 12 and um, adult education. Um, to, to lead up to the policy piece, just let you know that we're a hundred percent competency-based school, and that really allows us to gives us the freedom to uh, to unbundle, rebundle, and and certify learning for students, whether they're full time or part time, or even if they're out of state. Uh, we do have a decent number of kids who come to us on a tuition basis. Um, our model of learning is now we call customized learning, and when to define it formally, it's um, students determine when, where, and how they learn based on their needs, interests, and talents. And so that means that, that kids can um, propose a learning situation where they can be working at a museum, they can be out in the world of work, they can decide to do something independent, like write a book, um, or they can take traditional courses or mix all of those up. Um, it's really about how they meet the competency. And we allow them to to meet that any way that uh, can be defended and, and creates artifacts of learning that our teachers can uh, work on students with. Um, and so one of the things we also find that we need to do is, is rebundle because uh, <clears throat> what we often have are students who might meet a couple of competencies through a project, might meet a couple of competencies through a course, and. Uh, could meet a couple of competencies through an independent project. And um, if we were to send the kid out and say, well, there are six completed competencies, um, here's your transcript, good luck, uh, the student would find that it's hard for traditional schools to deal with that. So we use the concept of a backpack. And as students earn these credits or master these competencies, they are put into the backpack. When all the competencies in an area like, say, English 4 or Algebra 1 are met, then we award the, the credit. And then they can take that credit and transfer any place they, they need to. Now, the policies that allow us to do all these things are, there aren't a lot of them that have been required. One of them is the charter school law uh, so that we could 
you know, write our mission a little bit differently than a traditional school. Uh, but the the key one is is a policy that's been on the books now since 2007, I think. Uh, in 2008, all schools in the state of New Hampshire were required to be competency based. Um, and when I did design work for the school, I said we want to be competency based um, everywhere. So we're competency based in our funding, which means that um, our, our our funding is not based on um, attendance it's based on what kids learn and uh, the proxy for that is completion percentage or competency completions um, and uh, you know so that's made a difference matter of fact there was a research report um, conducted by central florida state a number of years ago and they found that there were actually some cost savings to the state for doing that that wasn't our intent but it was, it was kind of a byproduct um, we also, um, uh, as far as policy, it allows us to, to, to maximize that, the ability for students to go out and, and learn in various environments and for us to not uh, put uh, barriers like time and attendance in, into place. So it's really been that, uh, that competency uh, policy that allow, has allowed us to do everything. Learn Everywhere, I should mention, is something that has come about in the last year. Um, and has had a, a you know, a, a positive and sometimes controversial impact on, on the state. Um, it's not necessarily anything that we need to access because we already do that. We work with a lot of businesses uh, where our kids are out in the field. We work um, with many agencies and universities um, and kids do things on their own. The learn everywhere concept is that I'll just throw out an example. A museum could say every summer we do, we have an extensive course or we have an extensive activity that uh, centers on, say, the Revolutionary War. We'd like to offer U.S. history credit for that. They would take that idea to the State Board of Education, and then the board would make a decision on whether or not that could uh, carry high school credit with it. And so that's been something that's been been new in our state in uh, to me, it's kind of on a very similar pathway to what we've we've been doing. So um, it, it's been an interesting change. That's uh, super interesting. Um, and, and the idea that the learner ecosystem itself can get approved to offer credit is a novel idea um, and, and could be threatening for some, but also really a great opportunity for all these amazing sort of what we've typically called non-traditional non or um, informal learning opportunities. Um, Steve, thanks. I want to back up to um, Amy. Amy asked a good question, and Amy, I'm going to put you on the spot again because we all had a we, Tom. You and I had a a, uh, a good conversation around funding models because we've been talking about in this how do we fund it through the public sector? How do we use it in that way um, in a traditional sort of funding stream? In your dream, what does it look like? What are the other funding sources that you're alluding to? Well, I, I, I actually had a, a specific question for Steve. I don't want to forget, and then I'll answer that. Yeah, if that's for okay. sure. Um, Steve, I was just wondering if um, if a student, for example, wants to take a class in the community and it costs money, um, like some kind of, they want to get credit for something that costs money in the community, or they require transportation to get to and from it. Does it, does your flexible funding allow for money to follow them to other experiences to pay for those kinds of things, or or is it all the learning experiences are all still kind of contained within VLAX? I can't remember. 
how it works. Yeah, no, the funding that we receive comes to us and doesn't go to other entities. There are some um, other opportunities like um, uh, the Freedom Savings Account and, and, and so forth that are available at the Department of Ed that students could access. But um, no, we, we don't pay for those other, other opportunities. Okay. So that so this is this is kind of gets to a lot of what we've learned over the years. So we've been partnering directly with parents and their kids to first just understand kind of what their uh, interests and needs and goals are in any given year as a, as a family and a, a learner, and then to take a look at all of the array of learning experiences that might exist for that child in that year, and to bundle together the right mix of experiences that are going to move them along a trajectory, you know, that matters. And um, so often that includes some time in school, you know, and, and that's a choice of what, what you do there and, and K-12 funding or whatever, you know, largely pays for that portion of a kid's day. What we started to see early on in our work is that things like education savings accounts and other things that are trying to take kind of K-12 funding and then extend it to out of school experiences I'd say Matt is an exception of somebody who's been able to prove how to do this, but beyond that, there are not, there's just not, there's a scarcity of resources and certainly a lot of politics around trying to get those kind of programs passed in a way that would really give equitable access to kids to learning that happens everywhere. And so we, we have been on a journey um, funding the out of school time um, to supplement the school experience, but we've been doing it primarily through private dollars all along until this year we tried to pass a ballot initiative in the fall that had it passed, it would have created learning accounts for children um, with the priority going to children from lower income homes where every eligible child would have had access to $1,500 a year that they could have used to supplement their school-based funding. It was a, an increase in the tax on the marijuana industry. Um, and this is stemming all from what families have said to us, which is to say, I love the idea of my child learning in a summer camp or having access to tutoring or any array of learning experiences that happen after school or in the summer or during school breaks, but we just simply can't afford that. That's a very expensive world. And on average, an affluent parent can spend somewhere in the ballpark of seven to $8,000 a year per child resourcing learning that happens outside of school. So all to say, um, I think these models are really interesting and super, you know, important to push on the envelope. And we also still need to figure out how to fund the learning that happens when you don't have that K-12 funding to use um, outside of school or, or money that you your family has to spend. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I think that's just one of those things out there that we have to wrestle with and figure out how to find some common ground and always keep the learner in, my, in, in the center of that rather than other pieces, um, uh, philosophy, et cetera. So we're gonna keep moving here. So we've had a couple opportunities around equity, around policy. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit just briefly around platforms. Uh, Rebecca and I just wrote um, an article about a challenge, the EdTech crew just saying we, we're, we're still not there yet in terms of how do we document learner ecosystems in effective ways. Um, that are competency-based, that really build towards a portrait of a graduate, that uh, provide a long-term learner record. So, so there are, we put a few up here. Certainly, if you know of others that are playing in this space, um, let us know or put it in the chat. 
these are just a handful of examples of folks that are that are um, playing and interested in the space of how do we document in, in different ways rather than in more traditional ways that the larger LMSs have. So we know that platforms are a challenge. And then the, the last piece that we want to talk about is this idea of credentialing. Uh, and Tom, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how this, we move from unbundled to bundled and then now to credentialing. How does that tie into bundled? We just had a comment in the chat that having a, a common um, outcome framework and a, a commitment to competency-based learning are important. Uh, to me, that feels like the bedrock for the sort of two-sided market where, where learner learning support organizations, schools and others, uh, out-of-school folks that Karen talked about, and recipients, colleges, scholarship providers, employers, um, you really need to have an agreement around uh, a description of valuable skills and experiences, and then you need new ways to capture and communicate those. Um, we're, we're bullish on digital credentialing. Uh, the, the leading badging platforms or digital credentialing platforms are, are Badger and Credly. Um, they're working on simple wallet systems where a badge would drop into a wallet and become um, a portable secure way for learners to manage uh, their collection, uh, not only while they're in school, but uh, out of school and, and lifelong. The Mastery Transcript Consortium uh, is 400 schools committed to a new way to transcript learning. They're also um, introducing a new learner record that would be a, a way to capture and communicate credentials. Um, Greenlight Credentials, glcredentials.com in Dallas, Texas, um, has hundreds of learners, um, thousands of learners from um, hundreds of high schools using their new blockchain wallet to capture and communicate learning, both a traditional transcript plus um, new forms of, um, of credentials. Um, and then internationally, we're seeing quite a bit of movement. Uh, I mentioned Learning Passport here as a, a UNICEF project uh, is an effort to create um, low-cost wallets that will communicate learning. So. In short, we think digital credentialing is gonna be an important part of how we help learners in and out of school capture and communicate important um, units of learning. We think in this decade, it's likely to complement traditional approaches like courses and grades, but uh, in, in the not too distant future, we think digital credentialing systems and learner record systems will become the the dominant approach. Uh, my old friend Greg Nudeau um, in chat just mentioned Broward County. Um, they've been working on an important experiment just to create a link between math teachers and math tutors outside of school. And that seems simple, but it's really profoundly important of giving them a platform and a vocabulary and a technology to, to share read-write information about learners so that a tutor can know exactly where a student is in a learning progression, um, provide targeted instruction, um, and then provide information back to a, a school teacher about the progress a learner has made. So really appreciate Dan Gold's leadership in, in Broward and, uh, and Greg's support for that credentialing effort. 
So work to be done in this area for sure. And please uh, uh, add pieces right or add pieces that you want to contribute so that it's that we can contribute to our collective knowledge here. Uh, I'm spinning through the chat and just Karen, I wanted to revisit back up a, a few chats ago. You talked a little bit about Ron Berger and Yale and that this, this need for in school and out of school uh, pieces. Um, and can you just talk briefly to that to just um, to just help us understand that a little bit more? Yep, absolutely. Um, and I will, um, I think I put it in right, but we just did a really interesting set of interviews with um, folks who are running these exceptional you know, education networks that really have focused in different ways on community. And Ron's statements, he has two powerful statements. One really is um, that you have, to, you have to really involve all the adults in the building. So he's one of the ones that's the biggest fan of what I just talked about the first time. But he was also equally adamant that from an equity perspective, it's not just that parents can't always afford the after-school programs, it's that their kids, you have the host of problems from their kids need to work or they need to babysit or they don't have transportation. It's not just about the cost of the program. So his argument is from an equity perspective, if we think these kind of community-based experiences are important, we have to figure out how to offer them for every kid during the school day. That doesn't mean that we don't supplement them in the after school and summer times, but we just can't keep saying, well, we do school the way we do school, and these other enriching experiences happen out in the community, that there's a fundamental inequity in making that assumption. And it's not just about the cost of them and the challenges of getting those dollars. And Amy, you're right, or who I think it was Amy who said that, those dollars tend to go to programs and not to families. So that's really one of the pushes. And that's really, as we looked at these, these four programs, they were all focused on how do we build this in during the school day. Each one is doing it differently, but they're doing this at scale for young people during the day. Yeah, I think that that makes sense is that that we and this someone else was asking about how do we get teacher mindsets and thinking about to, to shift to understand that these are possibilities and what does unbundling look like in schools and how do we um, take a system that has been tightly controlled and reduce control for the benefit of that learner um, in an unbundling experience so that it is equitable and available for, for, for all. So um, all sorts of interesting questions. Um, Mike, good one around uh, Web3 work. Uh, learner records, we think, are, are an important part of that, as Tom said. Um, I want to wrap. We have just a few more minutes, and I want to wrap with just a, something that we've been playing around with is, is just how do we describe this in an easy way? And this is not the answer, but it's something that Mason put together as I sent him a scratch piece of note card paper to him on a photograph. But if you think about, we talked about bundle learning on the left, there's the school that's been typically bundled and then there's the ecosystem around it. And those two things have been typically defined as formal and informal learning. So if we unbundle both the school experience and we unbundle the ecosystem itself, so they're discrete experiences, and then think about how do we rebundle those together in interesting packages that occur as part of the typical learning experience for that student. Ideally happening during the school day and opportunities after school and in non-school hours where we know there's a lot of um, hours available, but it has to happen in the school day as well. And then how do you take those rebundled learning experiences and then put them into a credential and a learner record that tracks with them for their um, entire sort of career as a learner, which should be cradle to grave. So we've talked about big picture, 
How do we unbundle the learning, the learning ecosystem, and make that available? How do we do that in school? Um, so good conversation around funding and how does funding work, whether it's through public dollars that have typically been channeled to program via school funding dollars, or as Amy alluded to, what are the other more novel ways to do that? I think we need some good innovation in that space. And then how do we credential and, and count this? We haven't talked a lot about breaking apart the Carnegie unit credit, but we believe that there's some good innovation that has to happen there so that every learning experiences can be associated with a micro credit or be assembled into a credit that counts. Um, and Matt's work has, has started to think about that a little bit at my tech high. So all sorts of uh, good things happening here. Tom, do you wanna uh, send us off with any closing remarks um, before we close down? Just super appreciate everybody that's joined today. Um, there, there's so many smart innovators on the call. Love the school examples that I've learned about today. Um, love some of the out of school examples, some of the tough pushes on policy that we've heard. Karen, thanks for your, your, your 50 year commitment to valuable learning everywhere for everyone. Um, really loved your, uh, the conceptual framework that you shared. Um, I, I super appreciate the time that I spent with you uh, a couple weeks ago thinking about how to credential valuable learning wherever it occurs. I'm, uh, I'm very excited about a couple of projects that we think will move forward um, this year on that front. Um, today really is the, the launch of a, a campaign on unbundled and uh, credentialed learning uh, we intend to spend the next uh, two years studying this topic and um, learning with you and from you and trying to produce um, useful tools and policy guidance on this front. Um, so we, we welcome uh, contributions from you, um, partnerships with you, and um, again, just deeply appreciate your presence and insights uh, this morning. Yeah, and a big thanks also, um, in addition to Karen, to Matt and Steve. I uh, appreciate Steve throwing in that um, their, their granular level is one-eighth of a credit. So uh, not many places that are playing at that level of granularity. But that's a good model to think about as you're trying to disrupt the Carnegie unit concept. Uh, we'll post this town hall as a podcast in our feed so you can get all the information. We'll share all the links as well. And uh, we'll do a recap blog with the links, um, like I said. So stay tuned. And, and most importantly, as Tom said, please reach out to us if you have other ideas, if you have want to want to present contrary views or whatever the case may be. We are active learning here at Getting Smart. And so we want to help move the whole ecosystem forward for the sake of all learners everywhere having an incredible experience to make a difference in the world. So thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, rest of your week, and uh, stay healthy and be safe. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason, at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.